Eric Miller is just a good friend uh, to me and to the ministry here. Uh, and uh, most of you know Eric. How many of you have been here when Eric has shared before? Raise your hand just to get an idea. So the majority of you know Eric. He's currently serving the Lord uh, up at uh, Calvary Chapel of the Sierra uh, in uh, that beautiful area of our valley. Uh, and uh, I'm just excited to have Eric here. Uh, I love his teaching and looking forward to what he has to share. So let's welcome him. All right. It's, it's really good to be here. I really appreciate Gene inviting me, especially after I've taught before here. <laughs> he invites me back anyway. It's, um, just want to introduce the guys that came with me. First of all, my son, Miles, is with us here. Uh, the terror of the Minarets High School football team down there. And, uh, got uh, Dave Betcher and Dave York came with us and had three other guys and couldn't make it at the last minute. My dad was one. Some of you guys asked about my dad, and uh, my mom fell ill, so he that he couldn't come tonight. But uh, uh, anyway, it's good to be here tonight, and uh, hopefully I have a word from the Lord for you guys as we get into God's Word. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at uh, one verse, actually two verses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. Let's pray before we go to God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as men We ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of us, Lord, and that your will would be accomplished in our lives. Whatever we may be going through, Lord, I pray that the study tonight would touch our hearts and lead us to that place of absolute submission and dependency upon your Spirit, that we might see our lives being fruitful, Lord, because of the Spirit working mightily in us. And so we commit this time to you. We pray that your perfect will would be accomplished In Jesus' name, amen. As we get together as Christian men, I think we all understand what's expected. We all have the same goal. We're here for a purpose, and that's to encourage one another uh, to be the kind of men that God wants us to be. We like to use Bible verses like Proverbs 27.17 that says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And that's a great verse because it describes a part of what we want to accomplish by getting together as Christian men. And so as Gene's been so kind to give me the opportunity to stand here and talk to you guys for a period of time that really takes up a a, a lot of the time that we have together tonight, I hope that that's exactly what I accomplish, to encourage each and every one of us to be men of God. And as men, I know, or at least I hope, that we're all thinking in terms of our being men of God, in terms of being manly men. We, we want to be manly men because that's the way God created us, to be men. We're different than women. Scripture actually commands us to be manly men. In 1 Corinthians 16:13, the verse that we just read, it says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. A more literal translation of the verse, and I'm sure that most of you are aware of this, it says it this way, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 
I like to think of it this way. We're being exhorted by the Apostle Paul to man up. We, we want to man up, especially in these last days where manhood is frowned upon and, uh, and, and is not looked at as a virtuous thing anymore. And certainly that's what we want to do. And we get together, we want to man up. We want to be men. And the very fact that we have events, and we call them things like steak and study, I think is evidence that we as men, especially Christian men, that's what we want to do. We want to get together and we want to, we want to act like men. We want to be men. Back when you guys started calling your men's ministry Act Like a Man, I, I don't know if that was the theme of the entire ministry or one study you did. It just it kind of rang a bell in my mind. And, and so I did the same thing in Hemet where I was actually overseeing the men's ministry. And I, I called the men's ministry, the, the entire ministry, Act Like a Man. And it appealed to the guys because that's what we want to do. We, we want to be men. We want to act like men. And when we get together, we do manly things like a steak and study. And this is the second steak and study I've been to, and I still haven't had steak. <laughs> but that's okay, because the food is it's outstanding. I'm not complaining, but next time maybe we can have a steak. You know, I just That's for you, Dave. But that's what we do. We get together, we have meat and potatoes, and we, we get together and, like men. My wife just had a ladies' event at our church this, just, that, just Saturday, actually, and she called it the ladies' lunchbox luncheon. <laughs> now, by virtue of the fact that it's called a luncheon in the first place, to me, strips it of all masculinity. If you guys ever have a luncheon, don't invite me because I won't come. But it was a luncheon. It was the ladies' lunchbox luncheon. And it's really pretty popular with the ladies. The ladies really enjoy it. What it is is the ladies each pack a box with a lunch. They, they, they make the special lunch and they put it in a box and then they decorate the outside of the box. Isn't that sweet? And then they set it on a table and then they draw numbers and the ladies, you know, in, in, the, num, in, the, in the, uh, uh, the numbers that they received that they drew, they go up in that order to, res, to pick out their lunch box. And so, you know, what's inside is kind of a surprise to them as well. And, uh, the, the, the lunch box, uh, are, they, they're handed out uh, randomly that way. And, of course, the lunches inside the box are just as girly and frilly as the outside of the boxes are with the decorations. Well, that's not going to happen in a men's ministry. Don't tell me you've ever done that here. But this is not the kind of thing that we do as men. I can't picture any of you guys. I'm looking around, and I can't really picture any of you guys taking off work early, earlier this afternoon to decorate the box to be ready for the thing. I uh, think I can get off early. I've got to go decorate the box to go to church. Your boss is going to be thinking, man, don't ever invite me to your church. We get together so that we can act like men and be men, but also so that we can become more manly. We can learn how to be a man. And that's not going to happen in an environment where we're decorating a box or eating veggie sandwiches with light mayonnaise and these kinds of things. We get together and we eat steak, we eat ribs, we eat potatoes. That's what men do. But listen, I need to digress a little bit here because I'm painting a picture of, you know, this, this macho mentality, you know, this, this manly type mentality. I need to digress before I get carried away because... Yes, we are different from women. Of course we are. There is this, this vast difference that exists between men and women. 
And we want to be masculine because that's how God created us. He created us to build things and then to tear things down. He created us to protect and defend and to provide for and to kill and destroy when need be. That's what God created man to be. But when the Bible tells us to act like men, when we read verses like like this in 1 Corinthians, it says, act like men, be brave, be strong. Those aren't the things that God is talking about. What God is talking about can actually be summed up in the example of Jesus Christ himself and the kind of man that he was. You see, we want to be like Jesus. That's as men... And to be manly, to be the manliest of men, we want to be like Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't manly. He's the greatest man who ever lived. But the measure of his manliness wasn't demonstrated by those external things that I've, I've just explained that, that makes a man manly. If anything, Jesus' manliness was demonstrated in his ability to not crush those who hated and oppressed him. His manliness was demonstrated in his humility and his genuine compassion for the lost and his willingness to be a sacrifice for the world who didn't deserve that kind of a sacrifice. And he's the one that we want to emulate. There's a book that's been really very popular among Christian men for some time now called Wild at Heart. I don't want to get into the book tonight except to say that I'm afraid that it may have projected somewhat of an unfortunate light on this whole subject of manliness. I'm not casting any accusations against the author of the book, but his book is actually required reading of the La Familia, the Mexican family, believe it or not. Now again, I know that it was never John Eldridge's goal to encourage a murderous lot like the La Familia to go around torturing and killing and and decapitating their victims like they do. And yet that's what they get out of that kind of teaching that a man is about that kind of thing. Releasing the wild side of our manliness or being dangerous, as Eldridge puts in in his book. But if they were to read a true biblical account of how our manhood is found in following the example of a lowly Jesus, I believe that they would reject it outright altogether. Listen, all the frontiersmen outdoorsy, macho, libre approach to life that we can muster on our own is never going to come even remotely close to Paul's command to act like a man. The biblical mandate to act like men has nothing to do with our ability to skin a deer or climb a mountain or any of those natural things that we've used to label as being manly from a natural perspective. It has absolutely nothing to do with releasing that wild side of our manhood or becoming dangerous. Yes, we were created to be manly in that sense to a certain degree, obviously with different roles in life from that of women, and we certainly want to keep that natural order of things intact because it's a fact that when you start tampering with God's order of things, that's when things uh, turn out in disorder and chaos. So please don't think for a moment that I'm suggesting that men not be what God created man to be. This isn't an encouragement either to get in touch with our feminine side because, guys, we don't have one, or at least we shouldn't. (laughs) The natural, physiological, and emotional tendencies that separate us from the opposite sex are not what make us manly. And it's simply because apart from Christ... Manhood is not possible. 
there are some very manly men out there in the world from a purely natural perspective. As you look around, you can see these guys. I'm thinking of Bear Grylls. You know who Bear Grylls is? You've watched the Discovery Show channel. Um, uh, what is it? Man versus Wild. Man versus Wild, yes. I've got to tell you, the guy impresses me. When I'm watching him, when we're sitting there as a family watching him, we'll go out and we get the DVDs at the lab- library, and, and we sit there and watch that. And, and his ability to survive out there against the elements, it just it really impresses me. But you take the most impressive thing that Bear Grylls can ever accomplish in his life. Take the best episode he's ever done. Or take one of those episodes that can't be played on TV because it's just, you know, that's too much for the, for the public. You know, take the greatest thing he's ever done, and it's not even close to God's command, Paul's command in the scriptures, to act like a man. And so what I want to do tonight is just take a brief look at the verse in 1 Corinthians that we've already read that commands us to act like men. This isn't going to take very long at all. So that when we walk away from here tonight, we all have the biblical perspective of what it means to be God's man. Now, I know you guys have gone through this before. You know, you're sitting under the best Bible teacher in the world sitting right here. And I know he's covered this. I know you guys have you know, had that foundation and, and that theme of act like a man. You've gone through this verse. But sometimes it just takes hearing it from another source, hearing it from a different perspective, hearing another guy come and say, hey, you know what, this is how we act like men. And so that's what we want to do tonight. We want to take a look at this verse and see what it means really to, to be a man, to be God's man. Now, one fact that can easily be lost in the text as we look at the original language where Paul says, act like a man, the the one thing that can really be easily lost is the fact that he's talking to both men and women. We need to realize that this is a letter that's being written to the church and not just men in the church. And so, in a sense, the whole church, both men and women, this may sound a little weird, but they are to man up. They're to be brave. They're to be courageous. Now, that in itself should tell us that godly manliness has absolutely nothing to do with the externals of what makes us a man. Because quite frankly, if that's what it meant, most of us wouldn't be married tonight. And God's plan to procreate the human race would have been an abject failure. It is a fact that men are not attracted to manly women. And so when Paul says to both men and women in the church, act like men, there's something else going on here. And it's basically talking about the courageousness in which we live out our faith. And so this is something that applies to both men and women. So let's look at the verse again, 1 Corinthians 16:13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Now, this one verse... As we get into this, this one verse is written against the entire backdrop of 15 chapters of Paul dealing with a plethora of incidental problems that existed in the church there in Corinth. The church in Corinth, and there really is no other way to say this, the church in Corinth was an absolute mess, spiritually speaking. Not only were they blowing it by believing the false doctrines that were taught by those who were coming in seeking to tear down the foundations that Paul had established through his teaching, but they were also believing the lies about Paul's personal character. They were trying to tear down not only the ministry, but the character of Paul, and that's what they were accomplishing there in Corinth. After reading through 1 Corinthians, a person would be pretty hard-pressed to think of Paul as being anything but absolutely committed to the spiritual welfare of those people. He was absolutely committed to them. He spent so much of his life and went through so much for those people. And so you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find out 
anything other than that about Paul. And as we get toward the end of his 16 chapters of instruction to the church there in Corinth, we see that here in chapter 16, Paul is telling them that he plans to come through and be with them again. It's a desire that Paul has as, as he's making his way through his missionary journey and, and as he's preparing to return back to Jerusalem to take this, this, uh, this, uh, this charitable giving that he has received from the churches there back to Jerusalem. He's, he's sharing this with the church there in Corinth, and it's an extremely busy and complicated itinerary that Paul describes to them. Nevertheless, it is his heartfelt intention, if the Lord wills, to stop by at Corinth on his way to Ephesus and to spend more time with them there. It's something that he really and truly wants to do. And then there's the possibility we see in the text that Timothy might even stop by and visit with him. And, of course, that would be at Paul's bidding. Paul was directing Timothy and sending him here and sending him there. And so he says, hey, if Timothy comes, receive him. And so he's got on his heart and mind the people in Corinth. And then also we see Paul's deep concern for them in his strongly urging Apollos to, to come and minister to the church in Corinth. Paulus can't make it then, but you know, hopefully he can make it later. But the, the, the evident thing is that they are on the heart of Paul. He's concerned about them. And so what we're seeing here toward the end of 16 chapters of Paul having poured out his pastoral heart and seeking to correct the many wrongs that had developed there among the church in Corinth because of the false teachers that were present there, Paul is making, we see a picture here, Paul is making every effort to get spiritual help to them, whether it's him coming to them or sending Timothy to them or Apollos coming to them. Paul wants to make sure that they are taken care of, spiritually speaking, and someone to minister to them. But in the meanwhile, they're all alone. They're there all alone. There's only a few there who are committed really to Paul and to his teaching. And so he leaves them with this instruction. After 15 chapters of intense instruction through, these, through these, this plethora of problems that the church was experiencing there, Paul sums it up in this one verse. He offers this one statement that can actually be looked at as a summary to all that he's taught them in this epistle. And as men... It would probably interest you to know that this statement is the equivalent to a military strategy. The, the, the terminology, the phraseology, the, the language that's being used here is equivalent to that of military strategy. A soldier's handbook for strategies of war, warfare, whether it be modern warfare or ancient warfare, that handbook could read this way. And really, as Christian soldiers, this will be the strategy that we want to adopt in this spiritual war that we're involved in, in our day-to-day -day life. These are our marching orders, so to speak. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. These are our marching orders. Four exhortations that summarize Paul's instructions to a very troubled church. It's really an ingenious way that Paul has, has done this in saying everything that he's already said in terms of how they can overcome their weak and carnal tendencies in just four words. He, as he sums it up in this one statement. And the military overtones that he uses here of these four imperatives, and these, that's what they are. They are, they are absolute imperatives, as Paul is exhorting the church. These, the military overtones, overtones of these imperatives were a reminder to the church in Corinth and should be a reminder to us that this Christian life is a battle. We are in a war, guys. It's a deliberate reminder to us who have God's word in its entirety. They didn't have God's word in its entirety yet. 
He had not yet written the book of Ephesians, but we have the book of Ephesians. And so as we read this, it's a deliberate reminder from the Holy Spirit for us to look at what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus concerning their need to put on the whole armor of God, to prepare for the battle that's, that's about to, to, to rage in their life, which is a daily uh, commitment, really, as we put on that armor so that we can stand against the attacks of the enemy. And something we need to know at the onset is that Paul's instructions depend on God's resources to provide the ability to follow through on his commands. This is something that I I felt that I really needed to remind my church here recently because we're going through the Pauline epistles on on Sunday morning and then on Wednesday nights we're going through uh, Peter's uh, epistles. And there's a lot of practical instruction there for the church and and responsibilities that are handed to the church saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. But something that I need to remind my church and something that I want to to say at the onset here is that's not accomplished by our own power and, and, and the power of our own flesh. These things, meeting the responsibilities that God has given us in his word, will be met through our absolute and complete dependency upon the power of the Spirit in our lives. We need to submit to him. And in this environment where we're facing battle after battle after battle, spiritually speaking, we need to put on that armor where he's going to protect us and he's going to use us to bring down those, those, those forces, those, those, those things that are, that are attacking the church and attacking us, spiritually speaking, individually. And according to the text in Ephesians chapter 6, it's going to be an absolute dependency on the Holy Spirit. That's another study altogether. But I think you get the the point. The bottom line is this. We're at war, and while much of the church wants to play some kind of, I don't know, religious game of entertaining one another or meeting the felt needs of its members or being relevant to our culture by by dumbing down or watering down the message and appealing to what they, they want to hear. Listen, I'm all for relevancy. But when it comes to dumbing down and changing the message in order to be relevant, you've, you've lost the battle. You've given up ground that you should have never given up. And so we don't want to do that. The reality is that we are at war against some very formidable enemies who have received their marching orders. And their marching orders can be summed up in just three words, steal, kill, and destroy. That's the enemy's motive. That's the enemy's incentive. That's the enemy's goal in each and every one of your lives as Christians, and especially as Christian men who are supposed to be the leaders of their community, the leaders of their home, the leaders in their church, Satan is seeking to steal, to kill, and destroy everything that God has done in your life, and we cannot let him do that. And so let's look at our marching orders. Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is instructing us, first of all, to watch. Watch. The word watch literally means Stay awake. I mean, you can't get any simpler than that. We need to stay awake. We need to stay alert, spiritually speaking. And again, from a military perspective, it means to stay alert, stay on the watch, keep guard, keep watch, keeping guard at all times. Keeping guard at all times. Now, a soldier's responsibility is to stay awake for the duration of his watch. If he's given a certain amount of time where he's to be on guard, he's to remain awake during that entire time for the duration of his watch. If he isn't, it's going to be a court-martial down the road, isn't there? There's going to be consequences to pay for not remaining awake on his watch. Well, listen, the duration of our watch as Christians is until Jesus returns. And so our watch is to continue 
diligently without stop until Jesus returns. That's a part of our watchfulness, our being alert. It's in looking for Jesus' return at any moment. This is something that I'm, I'm being honest with you, I'm very concerned about. Because it appears that even some Calvary chapels have abandoned the pre-tribulation rapture view where we're looking for this either a pre-wrath rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture. And uh, I, I'm, I don't know how far some of these guys have gone, but this is getting to be a concerning issue to me. Christians simply aren't in love with his appearing like they should be. And the focus is more on making this world a godlier place rather than looking up and waiting for Jesus to return at any moment. Now listen, I'm all for being a godly influence in this world and doing what we can to make this a godlier place to live. But when it's all said and done, this world really doesn't have anything for me. This world doesn't have anything to offer me, and I'm ready to leave now. I'm ready to get out of here. And please know this. There's not one problem in your life or in my life that the rapture wouldn't solve immediately. (laughs) Not one problem. Now, That's not the only reason to have that hope of the imminent return of Christ, okay? It's not not a defeatist attitude that has developed this desire for the imminent return of Christ in my life. That's not why, that's not the only reason why I'd be lying if if I told you that it was not a part of it, but that's not the only reason why I believe in the pre-trib rapture view. I believe with all my heart that the imminent return of Christ to rapture his church before the great tribulation is the only view that Bible supports. It's the only view that Bible supports. And so we need to remain watchful. We need to be looking upward. We need to love the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's a part of what it means to watch and to be on guard, to be on the alert. So we need to remain watchful, always looking for his return. Also, this watchfulness means having an attitude of prayer. Oftentimes in Scripture, the, the, the posture of, of, uh, of watching is in conjunction with the posture of prayer. You know, watch and pray. Jesus said to the faithful three, Peter, James, and John, he said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we all know how that turned out. They all fell asleep. They couldn't keep praying. For the Lord. And yet he is so gracious in how he responded to those guys. In talking to his disciples, the whole group of disciples, about the last days, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. In Luke chapter 21, verse 36, same context, he says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And so as soldiers of Christ, we're commanded to stay on the watch. We're commanded to be on the alert, looking for Jesus' return at any moment, and to be prayerful in that posture of praying, watching and praying, watching and praying, constantly seeking that day when he comes and he solves all of our problems, and there's nothing left for us to worry about. Next, Paul exhorts us to stand fast in the faith. The word faith is the Greek word pistis, which means persuasion or credence. It's the moral conviction of a religious truth, faith. This would be what we believe concerning our Christian faith, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. 
Because notice in the, the definite article, as Paul says, the faith. Not your faith or a faith, but the faith. It's the definite article, which means it's the very thing that we believe about our Christianity. It's the very thing that makes us a Christian. And so we're to stand fast in the truths of Christianity. The term stand fast, that's another military term that speaks of our commitment to remain unmoved by the enemy. Unmoved in this, in this subject of, of our faith, the truth of God's word. It means to stay stationary, to persevere, even in the midst of spiritual attack. No retreat under any circumstances is exactly what Paul is saying here. And so the winds of doctrine, when they begin to blow in our midst, we need to gird ourselves and plant ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we're immovable, we're steadfast, and we, we stay in that place unmoved from the faith that saved us from our sins. But if you're not grounded in God's word, and perhaps you turn into a, a tune into a radio station and some old guy's on the radio telling you that the world's going to end on a certain day, if you're not prepared, if you're not grounded and steadfast in God's word, as he's giving you the reasons why this is going to happen on May 21st, 2011, you just may find yourself believing that, and then after that day comes and goes, your world has been rocked, man, and perhaps even devastated because of some of the decisions you've made based on the information that was fed to you as one who was not steadfast in the faith and immovable from the word of God. It's going to require daily preparation. Daily preparation. We need to be in God's Word daily, studying and meditating on it and memorizing it, going to Bible study and attending church, making the Word a priority in our life, so that when false doctrines do make their way into our life, we can remain unmoved by those false and demonic doctrines that are seeking to drag us away from the truth of God's Word. The next exhortation from Paul is to be brave. Be brave. The King James Version translates it this way, quit you like men. That can be a little confusing. It doesn't mean quit being men. It's the old English language, and basically it means act like a man. Act like men. Again, this is an exhortation to both men and women in the church, as women are instructed also to be brave and courageous in their faith as well, which is why I'm sure the New King James Version translates it this way, in order to eliminate any, you know, any uh, confusion about the subject. Men and women both are to be courageous and brave in their faith. Now, as we look at this, keep in mind that this brief summary, as I said earlier, this brief summary that's offered by Paul here is written against the backdrop of 15 chapters of his dealing with false teachers and the negative impact that they've had on the church up to this point. Paul is saying, listen, you need to face them with a, with a courage that's compared, again, to that of a soldier fighting on the front lines. But again, it's not necessarily the kind of courage or bravery that says, you know, I can throw myself in front of a bullet, though it may end up being that one day for some of us. Things are getting worse in this country. Two good friends of mine just a few months ago were arrested down in Southern California for, guess what, reading their Bible in public, handcuffed by a highway patrolman and hauled off to jail. And so things are, are getting that way in this country. And so eventually we may have to face some kind of a thing. 
like this. Peter says in his instruction that we're to arm ourselves with the same mind of Christ, talking about his willingness to offer himself as a, a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of mankind. We're to arm ourselves with that same mentality that we would be willing to march right up to a cross and be nailed there for Christ's sake. But until that day, until that day when we're expected to die for our faith, we want to live for him. We want to live for Christ, but we want to live courageously for him. You know, to die for a worthless cause is a lost cause. And courage without the right motivation, well, that's just plain stupidity. I, I think my wife may actually be right uh, when we're sitting there and we're watching Bear Grylls you know, do his thing on TV. When she looks at that and she, just, she says, that's just stupidity. And I'm thinking, honey, that's... He's just doing what the rest of us men want to do, you know. She says, it's stupid. And really, because in the end, what do you have in that kind of activity? But if you stand fast, listen guys, if you stand fast in the Christian faith, in the face of adversity that opposes who you are and what you believe, and you keep believing that to the extent that you're having an impact on other people's lives around you, that's worth something. That's worth something from God's perspective. Next, Paul exhorts us to be strong. Now, the phrase be strong, it's actually in the passive tense, which takes the process of strengthening completely out of our realm of responsibility. It's not something that we do our, to ourselves. It's something that's done to us, not something that we do to ourselves. If someone told you, go get strong, go be strong, you'd go and you'd start eating the right foods and you'd start working out at the gym so that you can get strong and you can make yourself strong. But here in the text, we're literally being commanded to be strengthened. Be strengthened. Let someone else make you strong is exactly what Paul is saying here. And of course, we know what that means. It's that dependency upon the Spirit of God in our lives. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The key to understanding the kind of strength that Paul's talking about here is in the fact that it's in the Lord and the power of His might, not our own might, which comes by His Spirit in our lives, as I said. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And finally, if you go ahead and you read the next verse, you're going to see that true godly manliness is manifest in our ability to do everything, all the above, in love. In love. And yes, that means the exhortations that we've just read that have those military overtones. We are to do those things in love. And everything that we do, we're to do in love. Our life is to be characterized by the love that God has implanted in our hearts. Now to some, <laughs> that may have just killed the whole manly, act like a man, standing fast like a soldier scenario, just nailed it shut. I'm, that's, no, I like the military stuff. That's good. But this doing everything in love, you know, I'm not sure about that. Remember what I said at the onset of this, this brief little study that we're doing tonight. And that's this, that Jesus is the man that we are to emulate. Jesus is the one. Bear Grylls is not the man we emulate. Take your favorite football player. We're not supposed to emulate that guy. We're supposed to emulate Jesus Christ. 
We want to be like Him. We want to act like Him. We want to talk like Him. The word for love here is the word agape. You all know what that means. It's that sacrificial kind of love. In fact, it's the same love that sent Jesus to the cross to die on behalf of the sins of all undeserving mankind. Sacrificial love, agape love, and this is what we're instructed as Christian men to live in and to do everything in love. That is the mark of a real man. And I want to close with this. It says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. These are the marching orders that are given the church today, given to godly men, Christian soldiers, in this battle against evil, against the flesh, against the world. It's a battle that we're in. It's a war. These are the marching orders that God has given us in God's word. These are the imperatives that we need to follow in being truly manly men in these last days. Let's pray. Father, your word is such an encouragement to me. I love your word because it tells me where I'm messing up and it tells me where I need to correct some things. But Lord, more than anything, it tells me that you love me with an unending love and you have a power that's available to me that is beyond all imagination. I thank you for that love and I thank you for that power. Lord, your calling is your enabling. You, you, you give us the wherewithal to do the things that you're telling us we need to do. Your word says be holy, so you make us holy. You tell us to do battle with the forces of evil, and then you give us the, the, the armaments. You give us the, the weapons of our spiritual warfare. You provide us with what we need to be men, Lord. You tell us to be men, and then you help us. You make us the men that you want us to be. And so, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that covers all the bases, that provides all the information, it provides the the resources that we need. It gives us everything. We have been given everything in your word. And we thank you and we praise you for that tonight. And, God, I just want to pray for these guys right now that if there are any here tonight that perhaps... They've struggled in this area of, of wanting to be a man, but perhaps they've been kind of drug in one direction and told that this is what a man is like, or perhaps they've been drug in that direction and told, well, this is what a man is like, this is what you need to do. God, I pray that every single one of them would be able to rest in your grace and in your mercy and in the power that you provide them to be the men that you want them to be. Help us, Lord, each and every one of us to, to live up to what you desire for our lives, knowing that you're the one that's enabling us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. All right, God's word is God's enabling. So uh, those things that we read there, uh, God is not asking us to do anything. He hasn't enabled us to do. I saw an article today. Um, the author said, we don't need to behave better. We need to believe deeper. Uh, and uh, it's it's worth meditating on that. Uh, lately, I've been sharing with uh, guys, gals, whoever that that are having problems in any area. Uh, Romans six, seven, and eight. Uh, you know, there Paul describes <clears throat> the the victory in the Christian life. Basically, he says, "Hey, Jesus was crucified. You were crucified. Jesus was buried. You were buried. Jesus rose from the dead in power." You've been risen from the dead in power. 
and we can reckon ourselves uh, and account ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And he talks about the struggle in chapter 7 about, you know, I want to do things, but I do other things. I don't want to do some things. I do this wretched man that I am. Who can help me? And then he describes the spirit-filled life that Eric was talking about in chapter 8 and how that the Lord wants to live uh, through us. And so uh, believe deeper. Uh, get get into what the Scripture really says, and uh, if you find yourself arguing with God, you're going to lose. Uh, you know, and so when God tells you to, when you read something and you say, "Lord, I can't do that," uh, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, you can. Uh, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So, uh, praise the Lord.